On April 11th, we're going to be starting our next Buddhist Geeks Life Retreat, and it's on the theme and practice of meditative inquiry. And meditative inquiry, for those of you who haven't done it before, it's a practice where we use a question, an open question, something that holds meaning and significance to your practice, and we work with that question. Questions like, who am I? Or what is this? Or what is love? Are examples of questions that can be used in a meditative way. And this practice really enables what the Thai Buddhist teacher Ajahn Chah called the wisdom of uncertainty to emerge in our practice. It's in using and working with open questions where we don't have the final answer that we're able to feel into a new kind of understanding of how things are. So if you're interested in bringing the power of questions into your practice, and this sounds like an approach that resonates with you, please check it out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. We'd love to practice with you. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Uh, I'm very honored to be here. I was, early, when the Buddhist Geeks started, maybe what was it, six or seven years ago, five or six years ago, something like that, I was uh, one of their, probably their first group of podcasts, and they uh, gave me the honor of geekiest Buddhist. I'm sure I've been surpassed by many, many times since then, but I was very honored to have that title. So, so thank you. Um, the title of my talk is The Approaching Dharma Cloud, I think it is. And I'm very happy to be able to talk about this for a variety of reasons. So it's said that when the Dharma reaches various shores, those shores influence the Dharma. Because the Dharma is so vast <laughs> and so um, real that it, it's not predicated on holding a certain set of beliefs that then have to be translated or transmitted from shore to shore. It is eminently adaptable to everything. So, you know, when it hit the shores of Japan, it connected with the Shinto tradition, and when it connected with the shores or the mountains of Tibet, it connected with the Bun tradition and, and so forth, and there's no problem. So it's very interesting to ask ourselves, when it hits our shores, as it has, what will it connect with? What do we offer that will transform the Dharma, and what will the Dharma transform in us? So, you know, I don't think it's Judeo-Christian tradition, which kind of isn't really that fluffy and vibrant anymore in our world. As a living, vital tree that is constantly giving off new shoots, I'm not saying it isn't real and wonderful, but it doesn't have that living quality. At first I thought, well, it, the Dharma is going to connect with scientific thought. And that's going to be what we in the West have to contribute. But I don't actually think that that is what it's going to be. Although 
the world of research and scientific thought has opened the minds and hearts of so many people in the West to the Dharma because when it can be proven, it's not scary. It speaks our language, so there's nothing pejorative about that. But actually, I think, fascinatingly to myself, that uh, the Dharma here in the West is going to connect with the world of commerce, the world of marketing, the world of selling things, because that is the predominant culture in our world. We live in a culture of commerce. We don't live in a culture of science. We don't live in a culture of religion. We live in a culture of commerce, for better or for worse. So what happens when the Dharma meets the world of commerce? It's, I mean, if you just ask yourself that question, for most of us, it, it invokes this sort of immediately like, Bleh. that's going to be really bad. But I would like, I'm here to say that I don't think it's going, has to be really bad. It depends completely on us and our cloud. So um, I'm a writer, as was mentioned, and I created something almost three years ago called the Open Heart Project. And I created it for a combination of uh, dharmic and commercial reasons. Let me be quite frank with you. I teach meditation retreats and so on uh, in various places. And at the end of every retreat, I would say to people, uh, if you want to continue to practice, because most of my retreats draw people that are not um, that are new to practice. I would say if at the end of this retreat, if you want to keep practicing, that's awesome. Please find a meditation teacher. Please find a go to a meditation center and you know, get continued support because it's really easy to get very confused about meditation and it's not easy to do on your own. It's, it's kind of like trying to get one eyeball to look at the other eyeball and it can get very awkward and strange. So please find a meditation teacher. And over half the people would say, what? I don't live near any, I live in Utah, or I live in Bosnia, or I live in Colombia. We do not have meditation teachers there. Or if they do, we do, they're really far away, and, or I don't know who they are. So I thought, well, okay, mental note. Most people can't get to a meditation instructor. So that's point one. And point two is, as a writer, I used to work in the music business, by the way. Along, all through the 90s, I worked in the music business, such as it was. And what's happening in, in publishing is what happened in the music business. There's no mystery about what's going what's to happen. Everyone who wants to be a writer has to have their own base. You have to be prepared to self-publish if you want to make any money, uh, not to mention be heard and published and so on. So I'm thinking, well, how am I going to do that? Well, I'll start a newsletter. Uh, but what will I say in this newsletter? Well, maybe I should, instead of just writing, this is what I think, blah, 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 I'll offer something. Well, what could that thing be? Harken back to point one. Well, I think it could be meditation instruction. So let me just say, I have a newsletter. I will send you, uh, for free, meditation instructional video twice a week. Just sign up. And very quickly, there were like 800 people signed up. And then they, these 800 people had questions. Well, you know, well, what do I do if my foot falls asleep? Or how come every time I sit down to practice, I burst into tears? What, what's, am I doing it right? How will I know? So I started preceding these little videos with an answer. So the 10-minute meditation practices that were fully guided, shamatha practice, 
um, turned into 15 minute or 12 minute or something, which is what, as they remain today. And then I just started adding other things, like, well, I know this is what people are going to be wondering about, and this is why you cry when you practice, and so on. And then there were 2,000 people. And then there were 5,000 people. And then there were 10,000 people. And as of this morning, there were 11,938 people. But who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly, I find that I have a sangha. And that has presented very interesting questions, possibilities, uh, and I will also say tremendous joy. So I called it the Open Heart Project because this has been my connection to, to Dharma practice, is that it just opens your heart, going back to the crying part and so forth. And that it's very important to remember that Though meditation is presented quite often as a technology, uh, yay, for geeky technologies and so on, it is far more than a technology for success or health. It's a path to waking up. And that waking up seems to happen not when we open our minds, but when we open our hearts. And, the, and you don't have to try, it just happens. Your heart opens as you, as you soften toward yourself during practice, it just happens. So I call it the Open Heart Project, and with the tagline, open your heart to change the world. Let's just go for it, why not? However, I, it's important to note that I'm not a guru or an awakened master of any kind. I'm a meditation teacher. So I needed to make sure that I wasn't bullshitting anyone, uh, my, myself, the 11,938 people, and most importantly, my own teacher, which would just make me so unhappy. So I thought, okay, well, let me first begin the Open Heart Project by dispelling the big misconceptions about meditation practice, of which, in my mind, there are three that I have found over and over and over and over again. The first one, the big one, the maha, the maha misconception is that to meditate, you have to stop thinking. So stop thinking that. That's the only thing you have to stop thinking, basically. But that's not really here nor there. But people come to the practice thinking, well, I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm completely freaked out because I can't clear my mind of thought. And it, that is uh, not necessary. And the way I tried to demonstrate the, la the unnecessariness of that was to say, trying to stop your thoughts is really hard. And your mind exists to make thought. And yay, because if it suddenly stopped, it would be quite disconcerting. So trying to stop thinking is uh, like, like, please, you can all do this right now, just looking out through your eyes, um, as you are probably doing right now. And now, please try not to see anything. <laughs> really, try. Try not to see anything. Could anyone do it? <laughs> Well, you can't do it. So that's how hard it is to stop thinking, and it's not necessary. And actually, this, um, the, t the previous talk was so wonderful, by the way. And just to invoke the quality of imagination um, is such a great reminder. And in this uh, way of working with your thoughts, uh, imagination is really handy. But the, sec the last two misconceptions are really the ones that would make it dangerous for me, I think, to teach, unless I attempted to dispel. 
The second one is that meditation is a form of self-help. And that is a big misconception. I mean, it will help you. And nobody comes to meditation because they're like, everything's perfect. I think I'll add meditation to my life. And we all come to it because our hearts are broken. Someone died. Our, our house burnt down. We're just completely stressed out. We can't stop watching TV. It, there's some problem. Something's not right. So we come to practice, and that's great. Those are good motivations. However, the purpose of the practice is not self-help. In fact, all the help seems to come when you jump off the self-help treadmill. That I don't even know you, but I would, can pretty much say that you've all, we have all lashed ourselves to quite tightly. We're not good enough. We have to be cuter, funnier, smarter, richer, poorer, younger, older, whatever it might be. Um, meditation practice is an opportunity to take a break from that. And into that open space, the wisdom and the compassion arise naturally. So it's not a form of self-help. And the third misconception is that meditation will make you more peaceful. And this is not so. I mean, in some sense, it gives a sort of like base note of peace, perhaps, in your world. Um, but if we come to the practice trying to not be affected by things that are painful or joyful, because when most people say they want to be peaceful, you know, we don't mean we want to experience emptiness, luminosity, perhaps. We usually mean, I don't want upsetting things to upset me so much. And I don't want, I want to be able to go through my life without this. I want to be. And meditation practice will not do that. At least not for the first, say, six lifetimes. In this softening and opening of your heart, you soften to everything. And so the world touches you, whether we want it to or not. And this is the beginning of wisdom, in my experience. Anyone is delightfully invited to completely disagree. But that softening is the start of wisdom, or is even the wisdom itself, you could say. So things touch you more. And I remember once I was, you know, I, I don't know what I did. I woke up and I just saw some headline and thought, no, that, no. No, no, no. This cannot be the world that we're in, where people do such things. It's, no. And I just, oh, I don't think I'm going to practice it. I think I'm just going to go cry. And I'm sure we all have days like that. And the more you practice, you find the more such days you have. So I remember thinking once, what? am I doing wrong? Because I don't think this is what the Dalai Lama spends all day doing. I don't think he goes to his room and throws himself on his bed crying, you know, like six or seven times a week. So I must be missing something. So I, I asked my teacher this. My teacher is Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, the um, lineage holder of the Shambhala Buddhist lineage, which I am honored to be a devoted practitioner of. And I asked him this question, what am I doing wrong? Because surely this can't be what is meant by bodhicitta, just wiping your nose on people's sleeves and so forth. So I asked him this question in a public venue, much as this, such as this. 
And I was, as I was walking to the microphone, I, I started to cry. I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. And it was one of these kinds of where you, you can't stop. So I asked him this, what am I doing wrong? And he said a lot of things, but I really only remember one of the things that he said, which was he looked at me very sharply and not unkindly, but kind of piercingly, as one's teachers want to do, and said, you know, some of the world's meditator, some of the world's greatest meditators have cried a lot. And in that moment, I saw, well, maybe the Dalai Lama is crying in his room from time to time, or my teacher, or Kensei Rinpoche, or, you know, the Karmapa, maybe they're crying too. And the difference between them and myself is that while my heart opens and closes, opens and closes, constantly fluttering in, re in reaction to anything from I didn't like my breakfast to, you know, someone just massacred a thousand chickens with a baseball bat, um, which is one of the headlines that made me just lose my shit. Um, they have stabilized their hearts in the open state. So rather than meditation making you more peaceful by closing your heart and making you implacable, it opens your heart and then stabilizes it in that state with, you know, devotion to practice. So that was an important one to tell people. I'm not, this is not going to make you more peaceful. It's not going to be one of the, if you enlist it in your self-help, you know, list, then it will drain the magic of the practice and you don't have to stop thinking. So those are sort of the first things I said, I said to people. The thing that surprised me so much about teaching online was how intimate it is, which is, sounds counterintuitive because I would tell other people, friends or fellow practitioners, I'm doing this thing, and they would say, well, how, how can that work? Because you don't ever see them, and you don't really know what they're going through, and how do you know if they're, if they're assuming the posture correctly? And, you know, all these things are important, and they are. But teaching online is different than this where I'm talking to all of you, to me, you are all of you. But teaching online, it's you and me, and you and me, and you and me. Because what the person sees online is just this. And so it has this quality of intimacy that I was not anticipating. So, and I found, I realized this because I can't see them, when I started to get emails saying, things like this is helping me I just had brain surgery or you know my heart is broken and this is helping me and where it really came as well as other people being very cranky and saying mean things so I, I don't want to you know try to say that everyone just loves me um, I decided people after a year were like okay well what can we do besides 10 minutes of meditation so I know from my practice that a retreat is what immediately deepens everything. It doesn't matter if it's an afternoon or 10 days or two months or whatever it is. That's how we just go take, take the next step. So I thought, okay, well, let's do a day-long retreat, everybody. And here's how it will work. I will just turn on my live stream and I'll, you know, we'll meet at 9 a.m. or whatever. And if in your time zone, it will be this or that. And I'll record it so that if you're in some, like Australia or something, and it's just impossible, you, I'll immediately post it. So you could do the retreat, you know, just some hours later or however it is you can. But it's going to be this day. We're going to do it together. 
and our retreat is going to involve meditation practice and journaling and um, a Dharma talk or two. And even during the journaling, I would just leave my camera on and I would be writing and I, you know, I knew about how many people were there because they'd signed up for it. And the, the point that really struck me and touched me so much was that at the end of the retreat, when we were having our closing conversation on chat, um, people expressed what I know to be the case when a retreat ends, which is sadness. This is, I don't want to leave this world of you people. And now I have to go back to my life. And how are you going to do that? How can I take this with me? And, and I, I just am so scared. I'm not going to be able to keep up this practice, but I know now how important it is. And, and I'm, I'm sitting there reading these things, and I'm thinking, wow, we really went on a retreat. But nobody left their home. So how can you do a retreat when you don't leave your life? Well, you can. So I saw it from that experience particularly, that was sort of a watershed moment for me, that the intimacy and power of deep practice, deeper practice anyway, can translate. And this is a very good news. This is extremely good news. So when people say to me, um, nope, you can't teach that online because of this, that, or the other reason, I know that you can. And you can, if any of you, you know, are teachers or would like to do that. So I wanted to um, share with you some of the things, five things that make it workable. And by workable, to teach online. And by workable, what I mean is protected. In Buddhist tradition, especially, I think, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and I am a, a Vajrayana student, we end, our, end the day by invoking the protector principle. And I'm sure you've seen these deities, the mahakalas and the fangs and the skulls and you know, stuff, stepping on human bodies and stuff. These are the protectors of awakenment. And each lineage sort of seems to have relationships with certain protectors or you invoke certain protectors for different kinds of practices and so on. And even though they look really scary, and they are quite wrathful, their enemy is ignorance. And if you are trying to fight ignorance, they will protect you from attack. But if you are being ignorant, they will attack you. So, not to be messed with. So what creates protection from ignorance in teaching online? So these are the uh, five things that I have found and the first is to preserve the transmission quality. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. So to teach someone meditation is more than an explanation. It's, it's not so hard. I could, we could all do it right now. I'm sure you know how to meditate, but you, know, you sit down, you follow your breath, you see thoughts, you let them go, you come back to your breath, you take a good posture, and so on. Okay, that's it, uh, pretty much. But it's not the magic doesn't come through with an explanation. The magic of the practice comes through via transmission, the quality of transmission. And transmission quality comes from the person who's teaching you having been taught by their teacher, who was taught by their teacher, who was taught by their teacher, 
was taught by their teacher, and so on and so forth, who was taught by the Buddha. So in some sense, you know, there, there's an unbroken through line from the source of wisdom to the person who is teaching you the instruction. So to preserve the transmission quality is of the utmost importance. And I once asked Sakyamipa, my teacher, how do you preserve the transmission quality when you are offering a product that teaches meditation? And he gave me a great answer. This is like 10 years ago or something, but I still sort of live my life by this. He said, the first thing you need to do when uh, offering spiritual teaching is, is to create confidence in the mind of the student. How do you create confidence? By offering something real. How do you know what is real? It is what you yourself know. Not what you've been taught, but what you know. So staying with that, we have the protection of transmission. And everyone screws it up, but still, try not to. Um, and the second uh, factor is to honor what in my lineage we call the container principle, which, as in the previous talk, it was pointed out the image of the Buddha, it's the space and the image, are, both, are equally important, and in fact, not different, what you could even say. And the container principle is what is meant by the space. So considering the space that something happens in is as important as the something that you want to happen. So it's a very simple principle. You know, if you go into a shrine room that's been there for, you know, a thousand years to practice meditation, it feels one way. If you, if you go, try to meditate sitting on the bus, it feels a different way. It's not better or worse, necessarily. But you haven't changed, the practice hasn't changed, the container that you are in has changed, and it informs the experience. So the way to cre create containment when you're teaching online is through a schedule. And on any retreat, the schedule is what creates the container. And you just, if you follow it, you're in good shape. But if you mess with it, then things tend to go awry. So the schedule is very important. So for me, it's Mondays and Thursdays, and each meditation is 10 minutes long. And that's all that is needed to create the container, is some sense of con continuity, consistency. Don't send it on Tuesday if you say you're going to send it on Monday, and so forth. And the third principle of the five is for the teacher to take her seat properly. And that is not so easy, especially when you're talking to an invisible audience. So as a teacher, you, we tend to either sort of get confused by thinking we're the guru or get confused by thinking we're a nebbish who doesn't really know anything. So these are both forms of confusion. And I tend towards this one. You know, most of us tend to one or the other. But I tend to be like, well, I'm sorry, I really understand this, but what I was, my teacher said was blah, blah, blah. And I found out very quickly that that was extremely irritating to people. And they were like, just say it. Okay, whatever. We don't really care. Stop talking about yourself. Just tell us this thing that you know. And if you don't know it, don't tell us. Fair enough. <laughs> but enough with the hemming and hawing. That changed me. That changed my writing voice. And it changed my teaching voice. Because then I had to say, well, what do I know? And what can I feel confident about? And how can I not, you know, people tend to project anything onto a teacher. And how can I, you know, if someone starts to think I'm their teacher, what, what will I do? 
because I get emails now from people saying, you are my teacher. So what would, what's the right thing to do, my friends? Do I say, oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. Or do I say, yes, I am. No, neither. So it's an outstanding question to me. So the fact that I'm their teacher is an arising in their mind and has something to do with me, but not very much. So I try to always say, well, it's the teachings that you're resonating with. And you happen to maybe, my voice speaks to you. But it's not really my voice that's the teacher, it's the teachings, luckily. Uh, so the concept of Kalyana Mitra is uh, a note, an interesting and useful concept. That means, I think that's a Sanskrit word. I don't think it's Tibetan. It must be Sanskrit. Kalyana Mitra means spiritual friend, K-A-L-Y-A-N-A-M-I-T-R-A, transliterated. Um, and your spiritual friend can be anything from your guru, who is your best friend, your BFF, um, or someone who uh, crashes into your car because they weren't looking. And suddenly you're like, whoa, you learned something. So you have to relate to that in some way. So a meditation teacher is a spiritual friend. And a meditation teacher, however, is not a guru particularly, but someone who has been practicing for longer than you. So I feel comfortable with that appellation. But I had to take that seat and not be like, well, I'm your girlfriend. Let's just be girlfriends and I'll tell you some things I learned. I had to really arise as a teacher. And that has been very wonderful for my practice. Uh, the fourth is to be fearless about the marketplace. And by that, I don't mean, let's see how we can make a million dollars doing this. But I also don't mean not think about that. Because in order to transmit the Dharma in the West, the majority of the students are not going to be monastics. So they can't, you can't transmit it via a monastery. They're not going to be wandering mendicants or forest yogis sitting in caves. So we can't reach them that way. They're going to be householders, which is the third of the three, you know, one way of looking at the three, three practice paths. Monk, forest yogi, householder. For us, our, our life is our path. Having bills and lovers and pets and freakouts and jobs and so on, that's our path. So to reach people in the householder path, we have to meet the world of commerce. And that is a fascinating challenge. And it's easy to go, well, no, that, that, that's bleh. That's icky. I don't want to do that. Or it could be like, yeah, I'll take it on uh, because I needed to support my, my life. Well, that, you know, maybe that's true, but none of those, neither of those are really good reasons. So to somehow enter the world of commerce with a sense of fearlessness, like let me see. Let me not just write it off. Or let me not just uh, subsume it in my own ego. Let me walk into this and see what happens. That's interesting. And every teacher will do that in their own way. And the final sort of protection comes from embracing the middle way, but not the middle way as traditionally um, associated with the Buddha Dharma of neither eternalistic nor nihilistic, but somehow in the middle. But the middle way that I'm referring to here is in our world of spiritual teachings, there are like two camps, 
and one is really big and one is really small. And one, these people think this one is stupid, and these people think this one is incomprehensible. And this one is the, um, the New Age, or Newage, as I once heard it uh, called, <laughs> which is, you know, just do these practices and everything will be great and you'll be happy and they'll, you know, you'll be blissed out and suffering will not touch you and you can attract whatever you want and so forth. There's some truth in all those things, but not in the way they're taught. They're taught in a way that makes them a lie, so that's interesting in itself. Um, so this is one way. Well, let's just, you know, try to uh, find a way to sell something that will make people think they can be really happy. And the people who are selling it, I think, because I know some of them, they really think they, they're not lying. They, they feel that this is true. I don't. They do. This other part is the ones who think, no, we cannot just teach the Dharma widely because no one will get it. And in order to teach it widely, we have to dumb it down. And dumbing it down is a bad idea. Yeah, it really is a bad idea. But there is no need to dumb it down to teach it widely. It's like saying the truth, you have to make, say, a, say it in a stupid way so that people will get it. No, the truth rings bells. So the middle way that I mean is not this, how do I just sort of dumb it down and make everyone think they can be happy? And not this. How do I hold it so tightly that only people who have run a particular obstacle course can get in? The middle. Not this, not this, not not this, and not not this, but the middle. So to close, and then if you have questions or comments, I would like very much to hear them. The ultimate protection comes from staying focused on the real purpose I guess you could use that word, of the Dharma, which includes, but is not limited to, things like lowering your blood pressure, thickening your amygdala, I think that's the one that gets thicker, um, or helping you be a better leader even. Those are all good things. But the purpose of the Dharma is not limited to those things. The purpose of the Dharma is to wake up and to open your heart and to bring more compassion and kindness into the world. And any dharma that leaves out that last part is untrustworthy. I feel pretty confident saying that. Stay focused on the three jewels is the ultimate protection, Buddha Dharma Sangha. And finally, to remember that the most valuable and precious things that we could ever encounter in our lives, in our world, the things that we all long for with a pure longing, love, wisdom, insight, creativity, these things have one thing in common, and that is that they are not things that you can acquire. They're not things you can crank up. They're not things you can go out and get, no matter how good your game plan are. They are things that we receive. They are things that arise when an open space is created. And these are the things that will change the world. So I will go back to my initial notion, which is please open your heart to change the world. And Dharma practice is the working basis for such a change, I would say. So thank you. That's what I wanted to share with you. And if you have any questions or comments or insights or arguments I w or jokes, I would be...
completely happy to hear this. Thank you. Hi. Hi. In terms of the uh, not being afraid of the marketplace aspect of it, um, I wonder uh, how long after you started um, could you quit your day job? and Or have you gotten to that place yet? That's a great question. I appreciate that. Did everybody hear that question? Well, I have my day job is luckily for me connected to the Dharma. I'm a writer and a teacher, so I am not going to quit those things. I have not quit those things. Three weeks ago, I launched the first iteration of a paid program called the Open Heart Project Sangha. Because now, after th almost three years, there's a people that are like, I want to do more, and I like you, and I want to meet the other people who are doing this. So, okay, now this is going to take my life, pretty much, which is fine. So it's $27 a month. And anyone can quit at any time, obviously. But in other words, it's not a yearly thing. It's not a year paid $27 a month. It's just $27 a month which is a multiple of 108, which is how I try to um, play tricks with numbers. And uh, my hope is that 200 people would sign up by the end of the year. I, I launched it September 24th on the new moon. I'm being very superstitious about these things. And then my uber hope is that 1,000 people will sign up by the end of next year. Then I could be build, then I'd be like sitting pretty. I could do a lot of things to build this open heart project that I really, really want to do. I could train other people to teach it. I could bring in other teachers. I could do all sorts of things that I long to do. And there are already, you know, there are already 193 people. So, but who's counting? But as of this morning, so I'm, I'm going to hit the 200 mark, and then we'll see. We'll see how it goes. As long as I stay protected, I think it uh, will be a good experience for my practice, which. Ultimately, selfishly, is my number one concern. Thank you. Hello. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about how you deal with students having unrealistic proje projections about your wisdom. Years ago, I started an awareness training thing more on Gurdjieffian lines. And okay. I tried to hear to people that, um, you know, I wasn't enlightened or awake with capital letters, but I could guide them. And they kept starting to project things on me. And they'd ask me something, I'd say, I don't know. And they'd get this look of, oh, he's so humble. <laughs> and, and I'd try to explain that I'm not so humble, I just don't know. The look would really deepen. Uh, you know, I eventually just ended the, the particular group I was running because it wasn't clear to me how to deal with these things effectively, but not in a cruel manner. I think you have a lot more experience with it, so I'd like to hear you expand on that. Well, I appreciate it, and I'm so happy to hear that you were uh, trafficked in the Gurdjieffian world, and I interpreted that stat that uh, feedback as Gurdjieff going, why did you just say my name? These people. Um, <laughs> well, that's a really interesting question, and I this may make me sound like really humble, but, um, which I'm not. Uh, I don't, first of all, when you're teaching virtually, people may have all sorts of projections you don't really know. Secondly, when people say to me, you know, please, I need you to tell me how to do thus and such or what the meaning of this or that is, it's really easy for me to say, I don't know. But the important thing is to leave it there. 
And then if they, and to have it just be very simple, I don't know. Statement of fact, I don't know. So then if somehow in the statement of factness of the tone, the person it comes back on themselves, then I think, oh, that's good. If I, if I, the only elaboration I would make to I don't know is, well, here's some place you could go to maybe that might be helpful. But I try to just deflect it without aggression, um, which would be another form of arrogance. So I don't know if that's useful, but that's what I do. Just, I don't know. Hi, thanks. You're welcome. Um, my question's about emerging communities. So have your students found one another either offline to meet and gather or even just start smaller online subgroups? And if so, are you interested in tracking their conversations, their progress? Yeah, thank you. Oh, there's no mic there. Um, yes, I'm very interested in that. And that is a new interest of mine. And that's when I started the Open Heart Project Sangha, the new version, I wanted to put, I want to put an emphasis on community and I'm not quite sure how to make that happen. They have not on their own started offline groups, but I partially think that's a reflection of me as a teacher because I just don't think about, my mind does not go into the community space very easily. And so people had to kind of hit me over the head. We want to know each other. So I'm trying to just create ways for them to do that, which basically right now looks like a private Facebook page. But the online retreats, and I've been teaching classes in the evening, four-week classes, meditating on love, or the one I just finished teaching was called the Dharma of Diet, which is how to make friends with food, just really simple things. Then groups seem to form within those uh, gatherings. But it really is an interest of mine, and I hope to pursue it. Thanks. Uh, I come out of the field of psychology, and one of the things that is a uh, pretty well recognizes that when people do private practice on their own and they open their own office, um, if they're not consulting with peers or uh, in a community of, of uh, other psychologists, uh, there's this thing called therapist drift where they start to kind of go off into their own world. They kind of lose their grounding in, the, in their teaching. And um, teaching online, I imagine, is kind of a similar exercise where you are kind of opening up your own office and it could become a solitary activity. I'm wondering what you do to get peer consultation and make sure you stay grounded as a teacher. Thank you for that question. And that actually is the sixth of the, of the, of the forms of protection, which I should have mentioned. And the sixth and most important form is my own practice. If I stop practicing or if I just phone it in, then as a teacher, I, I it's not very good for anyone. Um, but I'm very fortunate because I have been trained really well, I would say, as a meditation teacher and Dharma student, that in my particular lineage, the training, I, I practiced for 10 years and graduated from a seminary before I was allowed to take training as a meditation instructor. And I flunked. I flunked. They said, no, you're still not good enough. You know, you still, there's these things you really need to fix or work on or whatever, some dharmic way of saying that. And, um, and I did. And then I was, everybody else passed, my whole class but me. 
Um, so the training is rigorous and deep, and I don't have to make anything up. I do have to give, I do have to find my own connection to it. That's of utmost importance, because otherwise I'm just parroting things that makes them untrue by the fact of parroting. Um, so I have a framework that is endlessly helpful. And I also have friends uh, who I talk to, and I have a teacher who I don't really talk to about this very much, although he's very interested in this whole thing and how it's developing. But once uh, I was in a, another um, meeting with him, and someone said, well, how can we continue this conversation? It was about a particular topic relating to our sangha. And he, sa he said, well, you know, in some way we are always communicating. And that actually is true. If you are lucky enough to have a teacher, there is this sense of continuous communication. And finally, I will say that if I do F up, it's pretty apparent very quickly if I drift and start running the Susan Piver program. Uh, something will come smack me in the face in a very useful way. So, so thank you very much for your attention and um, continue to be deeply. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.